Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we have some flyers in the back for the Thrive. If you, uh, if you didn't get the registration piece on the bottom, so um, feel free to grab one of those. I encourage uh, you to be there for that. And I really encourage you to make a point to be here for our annual meeting uh, next Sunday. Uh, we've got a lot of awesome things to share with you. If you can't make it, or uh, for whatever reason, let me know, let the church know, email us, whatnot, and we will send you a Zoom link with the reports attached to that. So if you can't be here, um, we understand. Uh, wonderful. And just uh, this morning, I'm going to, Jim's actually going to come and minister to us because we were talking, and I, I love to give other people opportunity who are passionate for God's word and can, uh, can articulate it well. And so what he had in his heart really dovetailed well into what I spoke last week. Uh, but before Jim comes, I just want to uh, em- embarrass her a bit and say, Diane, happy birthday. I know it's your birthday today. Yeah, woo! So um, y- you can thank your son, Ralph, for reminding me, by the way. So uh, Jim's going to come and minister to us this morning. Thank you, Jim. Chat, mic on. All right. Hallelujah. I'm actually a little nervous, so bear with me. Diane's my mom, if you didn't know that. Great, great woman of God, and I'm so thankful for... uh, Diane, I just want to say, your life speaks to all of us here. Just in being yourself and trusting God, showing up, loving God through all kinds of different things. This woman has served Jesus through a lifetime and uh, has a great blessing to our church. Um, If you, uh, well, I guess in your Bible app, (laughs) you want to open to uh, John chapter 7. Hey, look at that. Few of us old timers still, still carry these. And uh, we're going to really read two passages that flow together in real time as far as the timeline of the scripture. And as Pastor Steve said last week, he uh, preached on Jesus being living water, that just as water is necessary to life on earth, uh, so is Jesus to spiritual life. And I want to build on that thought today and minister on Jesus not only being living water, but also the light of life. Because just similar to water being necessary for life on earth, that big bright thing shining outside, we don't live without it. And just as life on earth cannot exist without the sun, we cannot exist without the Son of God. Can you say amen? So let's read John chapter 7, which is a passage that uh, Pastor Steve used last week. And we'll go from there. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39 says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If you thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So I know Pastor Steve brought great points on water. I want to bring you into 
uh, the historical context in the scripture of when Jesus said, because uh, what Jesus said is important, but when and where he said it also brings a lot of depth. Can you say amen? And the uh, historical context of this was what we know Feast of Tabernacles. Can we go to the next slide, guys? The Jew, Jewish people know this as Sukkot. Sukkot means booth. And uh, I realize that I'm probably going to bore you with some history, but pretty much everything in this feast, here's where I'm going, everything in this feast and the history that it celebrates points to and has its fulfillment in Jesus. Everything in this feast and the history it remembers, I'm going to repeat myself, points to and has its fulfillment in Jesus. Yesterday, uh, we had a men's breakfast. If, if you weren't there, you missed out on some fine bacon. Just saying. My friend Barry can, can cook some bacon. I took some, I took some home. And our dog approved, too. So, like I said, I'm going to kind of bore you a little bit, but the Feast of Tabernacles... This is where Jesus is when it says uh, on that great day of the feast. And we're going to look at this because the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three Old Testament pilgrim feasts where all Jewish men were commanded to travel to Jerusalem and keep this feast. And it was a full week. And the feast was a very celebratory autumn feast. In fact, the Jewish people still celebrate it. Uh, It's very different than it was in Jesus' time. Uh, But this year, they'll be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles on October 9th through 16th. What a miracle that you can read about in your Bible, God commanding Moses, and we're going to read a passage in a minute, to have this feast, and thousands of years later, the people of God are still keeping this feast. They've been attempted to be crushed by multiple empires. Can you say amen? Amen. And yet, stand and they keep this feast. Hallelujah. And the key point of the feast was to commemorate and celebrate God's preservation of their ancestors who were delivered from slavery in Egypt and traveled through the desert or the wilderness to reach the promised land. We sang about that this morning. So listen to uh, Leviticus 23, verses 33 and 34. And then 42 and 43. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of Egypt, or out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So as they traveled through the desert and through the wilderness, really for 40 years, uh, they needed a quick way to build shelters. And so they would grab palm leaves, willow leaves, any, any way they could when that when that traveling caravan of really several million people uh, would, would stop, they'd set up camps and they would camp uh, by each of the 12 tribes and then they would have the, uh, what we call the, the, the tabernacle uh, in the middle. And uh, they would, so historically, in Jesus' time, they would do this. They would come to Jerusalem. 
They would construct booths out of branches and live in those for the duration of the feast to remember the journey of their ancestors. What's also interesting is not only, here, here's a powerful point, not only did their ancestors, the people, dwell in tents, but God commanded Moses and the people to build what is known as the tabernacle in the wilderness. And there in the middle of the camp with all the people dwelling in tents is a tent where all the worship of God would take place and God's presence would come down in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day and rest on that tent and ultimately go down to what is known as the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat and the presence of God would be there. Now we're going somewhere with this. Like I said, this has fulfillment in Jesus and it has fulfillment in our lives because, uh, have we got the, uh, yeah, there it is. Thanks, Jeremiah. Would someone mind bringing me a water? Um, my, my throat's really dry. Thank you. Chris to the rescue. Hallelujah. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I promise you, I don't have COVID, but I've got this like, thanks, brother. I got this like crud just, just sort of hanging there. And so this also has a fulfillment in our lives. All right, right in this. You see tents spread out around and then the tabernacle of the wilderness. Well, guess what? For us as Christians, this body is our tent. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, Paul is going right back. I mean, the readers understood this. He was going right back to the people traveling through the wilderness out of Egypt and helping them to understand that our lifetime as Christians, our journey as Christians, is modeled by the journey in the wilderness of the people of Israel. Do you follow me? And just as they dwelt in tents with the presence of God at the center of their camps, we dwell in this tent with the presence of God on the inside. Can you say amen? That same tabernacle in the wilderness also pointed perfectly to the incarnation of Jesus. What do I mean by incarnation? It's a big word. Jesus coming in the flesh. Listen to John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I don't think I included it in a slide, but when it says that he dwelt, that word dwelt literally means to tabernacle. It means to tent or encamp. So it says that the word made, was made flesh and encamped or tabernacled among us. And that's where we understand that everything about that tabernacle in the wilderness pointed to Jesus. And everything about that journey of the people pointed to our journey in this life. And so the Feast of Tabernacles in Jesus' time had many components. And there's, I mean, I over-researched this. My friend Bob in the back there said, You're preaching today? Should have brought another coffee. Hey, buddy. We have a good relationship. Our love language is insult. 
<laughs> okay, uh, next slide. It should say the Feast of Booths. So we're going to talk about two components of the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, one of them was called the water ceremony. See, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem with tree branches. The lighting ceremony, which we're going to come back to. The water libation ceremony. Libation is the idea. It's an offering that they pour out. And then the seventh day, Hoshana Rabbah, seven circuits made around the temple. That is the great day of the feast that we're going to look at. And these things had their fulfillment in Jesus. And so the water ceremony was a way to remember how God supplied their ancestors and all of their livestock with water that flowed out of a rock. And so uh, Numbers chapter 20, 7 and 8. I have that in the New Living Translation. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You shall bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. And that water supplied an entire nation. Think about the amount of water coming out of that. To supply an entire nation and their livestock and it with them and it basically traveled with them for 40 years and so in order to remember this during the feast of tabernacles in the time of jesus they had a whole ceremony that had incredible celebration and there was a pool there how many of you in john chapter 5 of a, of a man who was lame since his birth he got healed the uh, pool of siloam here's an interesting fact that pool man-made and it was created by King Hezekiah. Uh, I'm not going to go through the scriptures. But, you know, for those of you, if anyone here is taking notes, uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, and the beginning of 2 Chronicles 32, you see the armies of Assyria invading Israel. And so Hezekiah sends out men, and they stop up the springs of water so that the Assyrian army can't have water. And they take the spring of Gihon, or Gihon, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And they not only covered that on the surface, but they built an aqueduct and redirected that underground. And that, that, that spring flowed underground through a man-made aqueduct and fed the pool of Siloam. And if the city was laid siege, they had a water supply. And so... Every, every morning, the high priest would go down, and you see him there with a golden pitcher. And again, this was a huge celebration. And as he drew the water, remember every... Now, as we're talking about water, let me pause. As we're talking about water, let your mind go back to what you heard your pastor preach last week. Some of you are going, I don't remember any of it. Well, anyway, maybe I'll refresh you. I don't know. I'm not going to re-preach it. But as the high priest drew that water, the crowds would sing. You see that there's trumpets and there's a, a whole long procession going up. That's the temple at the top of the hill there. And they had this whole long procession where they would be blowing shofars and trumpets and they'd be singing and they would sing the words of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Now, who did that point to? Anyone want to answer that? Pointed to Jesus. Jesus is referring directly to it in John chapter 7 here. And after being drawn uh, from the pool of Siloam, the water was then taken with great celebration. This is trumpets, flutes, uh, and they would sing the great halal, which is Psalms 113 through 118. And the high priest would lead the procession back up the te- to the temple where they marched around the temple. For the first six days, they marched around the temple one time. This was to remember going into the promised land. What was the first thing they did after they went into the promised land? Jericho. What was the strategy for Jericho? March around the city. Once each for six days, seven times on the seventh day. And to commemorate that, they would bring that water and there would be this huge celebration. And, you know, just picture just a wild scene. People dancing. Everything I read on it, they're talking about acrobats juggling things and people dancing and all kinds of music going on. And then when the, (coughs) excuse me, when the day's sacrifice would made, because they made, uh, I, I, well, I'm not going to bore you going into it, but through the week they would sacrifice like 70 bulls. And uh, when that sacrifice was made, the high priest would go up with that pitcher of water and they had these, these silver almost funnels that they would pour water, the water into. Now, usually with a sacrifice, they would pour wine into a funnel. During the Feast of Tabernacles, and only during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would not only pour the wine into the funnel, but they would also pour water. And that day's sacrifice would be made, and he'd pour the water along with some wine into these silver basins, and we know, think about water and wine. This clearly pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. What happened when the soldier pierced his side? What came out? Blood and water. So they're pouring out water and wine, which was symbolic over a sacrifice that has been a blood sacrifice. And then on that last, that great day of the feast, John 7, 37. Excuse me, I've got to take a sip of water. That last day of the feast, known as Hoshana Rabbah, or the great Hosanna, On this day, the celebration escalated and they marched the water around the temple seven times. And this was again done with incredible fanfare and shofars being blown and singing. Uh, Listen to Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And tell me you can't connect this to another point in the ministry of Jesus. Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord... O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. What other point in Scripture do we hear that that, that cried out? You can answer, it's okay. Triumphal entry. Very same words. And so, picture this. Everything about this feast is pointing to Jesus. Everything about this feast is pointing to the work of redemption in the Christian life. And there's Jesus in the middle of this celebration, knowing that he's the fulfillment of it, seeing the wine poured out, seeing the water poured out, seeing the people 
singing. And then as the priest would pour that water, history tells us there was a brief silence. And it's in the middle of that silence that Jesus cries out. I skipped the scripture. <laughs> Let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 10, 4. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So here, everything symbolized in that water pointing to Jesus. Everything in the feast is pointing to Jesus. All this celebration pointing to redemption, and finally in that moment of silence, Jesus can't handle it anymore. You know, put away the Hollywood Jesus, please. Did you ever think about Jesus preaching to like 5,000 people at once? Now, he was God in the flesh. He might have added miracle, you know, the, a miracle ear to people's hearing. But sometimes Hollywood's got this soft Jesus, you know. Blessed are you, Paul. Right? you imagine the voice that carried to 5,000 people at once? That was not some wimpy voice. That was not some quiet voice. That was a voice! Scared some of you. And it says in John 7, 37 through 39, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone, can you imagine that voice? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The very thing that you're celebrating, the water that flowed from the rock, can flow from your heart. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And again, the significance of the water with Jesus as living water. That, Pastor Steve laid that one out perfectly last week. I don't need to elaborate, but... Beloved, it's important that you, we understand, all of us, the historical context of what, are, what we're reading in the Bible because I'm, I'm studying this out. I'm so thankful for pastor inviting me to preach because I'm, I'm studying this out. When I study, I'm looking for Jesus. When we read our Bibles, we should be looking for Jesus, right? And I'm going through, I'm going through commentary. I mean, don't, don't take this wrong. I spent a lot of time reading through commentaries and histories and trying to wrap my head around everything that took place at, in the Feast of the Tabernacles going on at that time. And it's like, there he is. There he is. There's Jesus. We need to see Jesus in our Bible. And we need to understand sometimes the historical context because when you understand all what's going on around this, all of a sudden what he says in John 7 here carries incredible weight, doesn't it? It's awesome. So let's think next about uh, an, another ceremony, and that was the lighting of the lamps. So uh, can we bring up that next slide? Because this was a feast, part of the Feast of the Tabernacles too. That is a picture of probably a you know, boy, 12, brave enough to climb up a ladder. And what I want to point out here is, as we talk about that, this, is that just as water is essential to all life as we know it, 
obviously, so is sunlight, right? And we're going to see in a few minutes that Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world and the light of life, or the light that brings life. And during the Feast of the Tabernacles in Jesus' day, I mean, those things are huge, aren't they? They had these lampstands. I don't know how they built them. Heaven knows how they assembled them and broke them down every year, but it was probably a monumental effort of engineering. But they had at least three and probably four candlesticks, each having four bowls, and they were fed by oil, and they were spread out around the temple uh, the temple courtyard. These were at least 75 feet tall and fed by oil in these huge urns and they would actually take the old priestly clothing that had to be discarded and they would use the, 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 the priestly clothing uh, and, and as wicks. And these things supposedly would burn so brightly that they literally lit the entire city of Jerusalem. And they did that to commemorate the pillar of fire. How many remember our picture earlier of the tabernacle in the wilderness? We bring that up. I think that's the next slide. There it is. The candlesticks were to commemorate that. And remember the pillar of fire. We have uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, 12, just as a good example It says, moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. And this is the backdrop of our next reading. Now, just because there's a little bit of space and a chapter break, really, what happened that we just read in John chapter 7 and what we're going to read in the beginning of John chapter 8 all flow in the same time time continuum. And this event in John chapter 8, which even even heathen are familiar with, we're going to read one of the most often quoted scriptures known to man. Okay, let's read John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? But they said, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. Now let's just pause right there. A lot of people... Try and say that he wrote different kinds of sins. Can we just be clear? We don't know what he did with his finger. He could have just drawn a picture of a house. He might have written different kinds of sins, but we don't know. But listen to this. Here is the most often quoted scripture in the world. So then they continued asking him. He raised himself up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. How many times have you witnessed to someone or tried to, as a Christian, sort of make somewhat of a moral declaration and all of a sudden the worst of heathen know their Bible? 
Let him who is without sin throw the first stone, Jim. But you know, that's a great open door because we have as, uh, I'm, I'm going to age myself, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. John 8, some of you are going, who is that? Look him up. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. He was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her all these great words, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again. See, this this verse, verse 12, that we're just about to read, is a summation of what he just did. This this is him teaching the lesson, because people are still scattered around the courtyard of the temple. And this is his summation. This is his lesson. Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So this is the eighth day of the feast. Remember the giant candlesticks? They're still standing there. People remember the brightness and the celebration that they were there the night before and against the backdrop of these now extinguished candlesticks. Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. In the light of his dealing with this woman. And you know, it's powerful because here, the, the, you know, the, the whole thing is just awkward, isn't it? To me, it really reveals the, uh, the gross underbelly of mankind's sinfulness. Here they're having this huge religious feast. Yay, God! And there, right that night, there's adultery taking place right there. And what's really gross is these guys clearly were watching. The man is, you know, there's two people involved. Where is the man? We don't know. The whole thing is like, ew. What was it, Jimmy Fallon used to have that character? Ew. Amen. It's gross. Until you really think about it. Church, we're all this woman. As hard as we try to be religious, as hard as we try to serve God, best efforts that we make, sin just keeps rearing its ugly head, doesn't it? You're always dealing with it. Hopefully not, you know, going out, please don't commit adultery. Oh, Jim said, we deal with sin. Ew. But really, we all sin like this woman in some way, shape, or form, even after we get saved. Don't be looking at me. I had a guy at work a little while back. I'm talking to him, and he's like, I'm not a sinner. I never sin. I started laughing. He got mad. He got really mad because I'm like, "Ah!" Are you kidding? I said, well, I'm going to church on Sunday because 
I need to be with the other sinners. Pray for me, Jesus, because if you're sinless, with him. We're all this woman. Not only that, we can all be this crowd. Very quick to point out the sin of others and ignoring our own. Oh, don't look at me all holy there. We as human beings are masters of what I call deflection. And what I mean by that is that when people get a little close to, to, to where you are, you start pointing out, well, what about him? And what about them? And what about you? What about this part of your life? Right? Why? Well, you're getting a little close to where they live. So here they are, and the fact is, they cannot remain in the presence of Jesus. And if any one of us had been standing there in his presence with a rock in our hand, let me tell you, we would have backed away too. And yet Jesus beautifully administers divine forgiveness and grace to this woman, doesn't he? Where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? What words are that? Neither do I condemn you. But now here's the second half of grace. Go and sin no more. Don't continue in this lifestyle. Don't keep living like you've been living in the same places with the same people doing the same things. Are you with me? And just as he did for her, he wants to do for us. And there, with these now extinguished candlesticks as a backdrop, Jesus makes this wonderful statement as a summation, and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To walk in darkness is to live in self-will. It's to live in sinfulness apart from a relationship with God through Christ. That's what it means to walk in darkness. And mankind is trying all kinds of stuff to illuminate themselves. Why? Because they know they're in darkness, somewhere inside. People may not turn to Christ, but they're turning to all kinds of other stuff, wanting to be illuminated, right? Wanting to be spiritual. Why is that? Because somewhere inside they know they're in darkness, and they're trying to locate the light that they hunger for. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 says, The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines even brighter under the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. I'm going to read that again. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. In other words, I'm going through life. I can't figure it out. I keep getting in my own way. Anyone ever been to a completely unfamiliar place and it's like pitch black? And, you know, especially if you're getting towards my age, you got to get up in the middle of the night to go potty. I have stubbed my toe so badly in a hotel room, it's not even funny. I think I broke my toe once. Because you got no idea, you know what I mean? You, you, you just don't have the mental map. It's pitch black, you're half asleep, and you're trying to find your way out. Bam! You know, bad word. Or think about the nation of Israel trying to travel in the wilderness at night without the pillar of fire. You imagine that? 
without God's light to guide them, how well would that have gone with this entire nation trying to travel together through the darkness? They wouldn't have been able to figure it out, would they? But I have good news, church. Jesus invites us into his light. Just as he invited this woman, he invites us. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 5, 8. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness. How many have read that in Genesis? That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was without form and void. And what does God do? And the Lord said, let there be light. And that same power that spoke light into the universe. When you believed on Jesus... When you surrendered your heart to Him, that same power, that same voice said, let there be light into Jim Gregory's heart. And the thing that I'd been searching for with drugs, the things that I'd been searching for, reading Buddhist manuscripts and studying Hinduism and mingling in some of the Catholicism that I'd been raised in and reading philosophy books, all that went out the window because I finally had light. And that light was Jesus. The light of life. The light of the world. Just as the, Jesus administered forgiveness and grace to this adulterous woman against the backdrop of these now extinguished giant candlesticks, to me, those extinguished giant, giant candlesticks represent mankind's best try to produce light. But they still extinguished but Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What light brings life to the entire planet? The sun. And just as the sun brings not only illumination that we can see, but brings light, creates photosynthesis and all the processes Jesus is that same light to you and I spiritually. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 is a wonderful promise. The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter to that perfect day. There's the promise to us as Christians. It gets brighter, it gets stronger. We're living in a day where the, the word deconstruction is thrown around. All kinds of It's become a, a cool thing to say, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore. Well, that goes completely against the promise that I'm reading. I got saved back in 1984, and I know today I need Jesus more than I ever thought I did. Come on now. And His light, His presence, is like the light of the sun to the earth and shining in our lives. And without an awareness, here's where I'm going with this, without an awareness and an ongoing experience with His presence, we die spiritually. 
What would happen to life on earth if the sun blipped out tomorrow? We'd die real quick, wouldn't we? Everything would die. Well, it's the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in our lives that's just like the sun to the earth. We can't live without him. And you know what? You can be in church. You can be caught up in the busyness of church. In fact, sometimes, and I, I don't, I'm not saying this insultingly to Pastor Steve or anybody else, church life can suck you in so much that you can be busy with all these things and that becomes your relation, what you think is your relationship with God. Well, I must, be, I, I must be close to God. I'm involved with this, and I'm involved with that. I'm going here, and I'm doing this. And, you know, what's the center of that, that argument? I, me, I'm doing this. I'm going here. Me, me, I, 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 me, mine. Good old Beatles song. I, I, me, me, mine. Yeah, I throw these things out every now and then. <laughs> Here's where I'm going, church, and we're, we're going to be done in a few minutes. Bear with me. Bob was right. You should have brought an extra cup of coffee. <laughs> without actively drawing from this well of living water and without actively coming into the light of the Holy Spirit, we're going to die. And it's important to point out something. Because sometimes churches, I like worship service. I like singing up here. You know what I mean? I, I love worshiping the Lord. Amen. But you know, sometimes, and I've been guilty of this too, we sort of go into this almost pagan mode where we're trying to summon the presence of God. Come, come. And he's like, I'm living in you already. I'm already there. That shattered the mold for a few people. Look, the music is meant to help you clear out all the clutter because every one of us walks in here, especially right now, man, the news is bananas, right? Our world has gone mad. And, and let me tell you, it might get crazier. What if it gets worse in the next couple of weeks, church? What are you going to do then? I'm going to serve God. <laughs> Simple as that. I'm going to walk with Jesus. But you see where I'm going here. We can get all caught up trying to summon the presence of God. And there is a, a, a very awesome presence of God that can come in around a church service. But we can't live on that all the time. This river of living water, according to John chapter 7, verse 38, flows from our hearts, the center of our being. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, says the same God who spoke light into darkness has shined into our hearts. That light, that water, is not out there somewhere where we've got to summon it. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's already in you. Uh-oh. See, God now chooses to dwell with us in these earthly tents. 
Think about that. Jesus came and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. Why? So that God could dwell in us. And you know what? Now, we're not just some lame tent going around. We are that living, breathing tabernacle with the presence of God in the very most inner sanctum of our hearts. I don't know if you're quite catching what I'm trying to say, but what I'm trying to say is uh, to access God's presence. And we need God's presence as much as we need water and as much as we need sunlight. We need the presence of God. And to access that, we don't necessarily need to go out there. We've got to learn a a spiritual discipline, which is very difficult and very, I'll just say it, it not, not happening really in what I call the American church, where we learn to go in here for the presence of God. And you know what that means? You can access the presence of God wherever you are at any given time. Uh oh. This means we need to be relational with God and not just transactional. For some of us, our whole prayer life is, oh, and you know, I'm not saying don't pray like this. I'm trying to say, you, gotta, you might need to add a deeper practice along with praying this way. We need to pray for people, don't we? We need to pray for circumstances. Our prayers, I don't know why, but our prayers are powerful. And so, yes, there needs to be a time in our life where we're praying for that unsaved loved one. We're praying for the people of Ukraine. We're praying for someone who needs housing. And we're, oh God, in Jesus' name, please move in this situation. We speak, you know, and, 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 and interceding and praying like that. We need that. But that's not the only kind of prayer life we should have. Because that's Transactional. You're asking God to do something. What do I mean by relational prayer? Well, the older I get, two things are happening in the relationships I value most, and that is my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my kids. We don't need to be, quote, doing anything. More and more, I just like being in the same room with my wife. We don't talk all the time. Something I look forward to on a daily basis, just sitting on the same couch with the TV on and just being together. Just being together. Same thing with my kids, more and more. Especially now, you know, we got an empty nest, the kids have moved out. When they come around, I just drink in just having them there. Whether we're talking about a lot, whether we're just hanging out. Well, you know, your Heavenly Father's not much different. And we've got to learn to just be with God. But you know what this requires? And this is where it gets scary silence. Our culture doesn't do silence. Some of you, the thing you're scared of most is silence. Because when it's silent, you have to listen to your thoughts. You have to see what you're thinking about. 
get to feel the emotions that go along with those thoughts. And you're going, there's no way with the way my mind spins and my heart starts beating that I could ever just get quiet and be with God. Well, maybe not right away, but if you give it time, you can get there. Amen. See, you don't have to respond to everything you think. You don't have to respond to everything you feel. We have this amazing thing that God built into us called reflection. David talked about it. He said, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? That's someone who almost separated himself, right? Sort of stepped back and looked. Why am, look at this emotion. Why am I feeling this way? And if you give it time, and if you give it practice, you really can learn to still your thoughts and just know that the presence of God is right there in you. Now, I'm going to shock a few of you, but a great example is actually found in the AA program. Step 11. Let's read this. And I realize there's theological issues in this. And we're not necessarily going there right now. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him. Praying only for the knowledge of His will and the power to carry it out. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve what? Our conscious contact with God. That's what I'm talking about. Beginning to live in a place, and I realize, look, I'm a carpenter, okay? I use power tools, I cannot be, you know, oh, you know, this. I, there's times where things are going on and I've got to be completely focused on my work in front of me. And to be honest, I'm not thinking about God in that moment. Right? We all have those things. Life goes nuts. You know, it goes crazy. So what have I learned to do? I've learned to have a space of my own that I, I try to get to daily where I just get quiet. And stop. There's the other thing we don't know how to do in America. We don't know how to stop. Every second of every day, of every minute, has to be filled with doing something. And especially as men, got to be productive. Things to do. (laughs) I'm not saying where to go or what to do. For me the ocean almost has like a mystical power. Even before I got saved, we moved up here, I was 17, I'm on a lot of, you know, I'm just smoking weed nonstop. But all I can tell you is, I'd go, my head was spinning, things going on, and I'd go to the beach, and I didn't know what was up. I came from a Catholic background. I'd go and I'd walk the beach and I'd smoke a joint and talk with God. (gasps) Some of you are like, ah! Don't worry, I don't smoke the joint anymore. (laughs) Well, there's the thing. When I got saved, I didn't want the joint anymore. And I didn't want the booze anymore because I'd, I'd found the thing that I was looking for by using those things. When you get high on Jesus, no LSD trip, no drug, no crack, 
None of that is going to make you fly like the presence of God. Amen. All I'm saying is you've got to find your spot. My spot, I'll try and get near the water, whatever. But you know what I, I focus on doing? And I'm not, I'm not all that. I'm just trying to show you something that God's really been helping me with. I just stop. I don't even walk. I either sit, stand still, breathe the air, look at the beauty of creation, and try to let every other thought, all the other emotions, and all the other junk go and just get in conscious contact with God. That brings me life. I go a few days without doing that. I begin to experience almost the same symptoms as though I've been fasting. I get squirrely. I get weird. Amen. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to bring divine illumination, life to our souls, and it is vital that we learn to meet with God inwardly and not just through outward religious practices. I've got one more slide, one more scripture, and then we're going to pray. Psalm 46, verse 10. Got that? Please tell me you have that. Uh Uh-oh, Jerry's giving me the thumbs down. He's like Caesar up there. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. God's saying, you stand still. I'm going to take care of this. You can't solve this. This is bigger than you. Be still and know that I am God. And as you come into that place, let me tell you, It's no different than having been in the dark for a long time and stepping out into the nice, bright sunshine and drawing life. And Jesus is that very light of life. Amen? Let's pray for a minute. Father, I thank you so much for, (laughs) I thank you for a patient church. I thank you for this gathering. I thank you for your people. Above everything, Lord, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that redeems us, that cleanses us so that you can come and dwell in us and walk in us and be our God. And Lord, we pray today that you'd help us. I pray for those who, like this adulterous woman, are looking for forgiveness. I pray for those who, like the crowd, are walking in a very spirit of judgmentalism, Lord, that you'd bring conviction. Most of all, I pray for your people, especially during a time where there's lots of unrest, lots of anger and anxiety and trouble. Let your people be a people of peace. Let your people be a people of grace. Let us walk in your presence and express your presence and carry your presence and your stillness and your peace and your grace into our jobs, into our homes, into the store, into any place that we go. And Lord, help each one of us here to learn to draw from that well of living water. Let us draw from the very light of life. Invigorate your people, Father. Your people are weary. We're struggling. I pray you'd bring a fresh invigoration of spiritual life. And I pray that you would teach us individually to find that place and to learn that way of meeting with you 
and just enjoying your presence. And Father, I thank you for the miracle that as our Heavenly Father, you simply enjoy being with us. You rejoice over your redeemed. And I pray, Father, that you'd bear witness of that in every heart today, struggling with condemnation, struggling with shortcomings, struggling with themselves and with life and with questions. Break through all of that, I pray, Father, right now by the Holy Spirit and administer your love and administer your peace. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, church. Thank you for your patience. I, I realize that I tend to preach too long, but thank you for your patience and to reward it. We have some goodies in the back, and we'd love to encourage you to stick around and uh, fellowship for a few minutes and rejoice together in Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.